I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Okay, well, before we get started, I'm going to do something that I occasionally do, because I've had a long day. It's a Wednesday night here in Barcelona, but I'd like to just ask everyone listening and my guest, who I'm about to introduce, to just take a breath with me. In fact, let's take three breaths. So I'm going to put my feet on the floor. You're welcome to do whatever you want, but I'm just going to take three big breaths in through my nose and out through my mouth to just land and be present in this conversation I'm about to have. So if you want to take a breath with me, take an inhale. And another two. And then finally, just land. So I find I've just gotten off the metro in Barcelona. Somebody's been talking on the phone three inches from my face. And I just wanted to clear space for myself to be present. So I want to welcome my guest tonight, who was gracious enough to reschedule when I got ill a couple weeks ago and we were supposed to do this. So I want to welcome David Richmond and introduce him. He is currently in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I always have a soft spot for people who are based in Rocky Mountain Time, Mountain Standard Time, officially, but that's where I grew up. So there, it always feels a bit connected. But David is an entrepreneur, author, public speaker, athlete, and philanthropist. He brings the lessons learned in his life to enrich and inspire others. By the time he was in his late 30s, David was a sedentary, overweight smoker who was stuck in an abusive and unhealthy marriage. It was clear that if he was going to enjoy any kind of satisfaction in life, he had to stop focusing on what others wanted out of him and zero in on what he wanted for himself. In his first book, Winning in the Middle of the Pack, David discussed how to get more out of ourselves than we ever imagined. And that appeals to me because so much of my work on leadership comes from a philosophy that anyone can and should be a leader, even from the middle of the pack. And I'm sure we'll get to that, but there's more. David recently wrote a book called Cycle of Lives, in which he shares the stories of people overcoming cancer. And he first started to form the idea for the book in 2007 when his sister-in-law was in, well, no, his sister, sorry, was in the last few weeks of her battle with brain cancer. So he set out on a nearly 5,000-mile solo bike ride across the United States in which, in just six weeks, he visited most of the participants for the book, which chronicles 15 people's unique emotional journeys with cancer as caregivers, patients, loved ones, doctors, etc. He went through the various traumas in their lives as they told him their stories and how that affected their experience of life and of cancer. He also explores in the book issues that are truly human and often uncomfortable to talk about, like suicide, abandonment, loss, survivor guilt, abuse, fertility issues, and the way people deal with trauma. So these stories are interwoven amongst the narratives of his own solo 5,000-mile bike ride to go and meet them all. And 100% of the net proceeds of the book have gone to cancer-related charities picked directly by those whose stories are in the book. So it's a really beautiful ethos from start to finish. And it goes without saying that it's inspirational, insightful, and evocative. 
So David made a commitment to his sister before her passing that he would run 24 hours and raise money to support the fight of others. So over the last 15 years, David has completed several more events, 24-hour runs, an 87-mile run from Cancun to Tulum in the heat of a Mexican summer, which frankly sounds insane, but my hat goes off to you. Also, a hundred, it gets worse. It gets worse, people. A 104 mile run along the Pacific Coast Highway, which it sounds like great scenery, but still, you had to run 104 miles to get there. Taking very long bike rides and various other endurance events. I can't even imagine. So, this is going to be an interesting chat, I can tell. Hundreds of people have supported and joined David in these events because you can imagine the profile that that kind of endurance raises. And together, he and these people have raised tens of thousands of dollars along the way. David regularly serves as a guest speaker, has been interviewed on a wide range of podcasts. If you just Google him, you will see a lot of them. And his latest book that we already talked about is an Amazon number one bestseller. His passion and what drives all of this is to inspire deeper human connection. We're definitely aligned on how discomfort can be productive and even beautiful and world changing. and also, how it can lead to incredible evolution and impacts on others and even be, I would say, one of your superpowers. So welcome, David. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Thank you, Betsy. What a wonderful intro. And thank you for capturing things that are so important to me so well. I really appreciate it. Well, it's going to be an inspiring chat. And I only ever have people on this podcast who are people I really want to have a conversation with. And... I'm really interested, based on all of that background, mm-hmm. about what your answer to my first question will be. You know, will it be in there or will it be a surprise? I've not let, been letting myself think about it too much. Sure. So I kind of want to be surprised. Lay on, lay so, on. All right, let's go. What's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life that has shaped who you are and what you do in the world? I think I was drawn to reach out to you for exactly that reason, because uncomfortableness it's a, I had an old boss who I went in and I complained about doing something that was really, really uncomfortable that I had to do. And she said, darling, we do hard work here. If you want a friend, get a dog. And it was really, really uncomfortable to do that. And I think in answer to your question, there have been so many uncomfortable positions that I've been in where during the time you don't know that it's a catalyst for change or growth or learning or enlightenment Mm -hmm. or finding this ingredient to some secret sauce. You don't know it when you're going through it, but later on you do. And boy, I could tell you, Betsy, there's a million uncomfortable moments. The one I'm going to tell you is one that you won't – I'm going to tell you a quick story, and it's probably one of the most physically uncomfortable moments I've ever had, but it's permeated – me and thinking about what came into my head during that moment. It's affected me emotionally, physically, mentally, psychologically in my most waking and aware moments. And also subconsciously, it's affected me. And I was doing my very first endurance event, which people are going to laugh. If they knew me, they would laugh even harder. I did an 85 mile rollerblade race. (laughs) So I am not a coordinated guy right and I certainly don't look good in spandex on rollerblades and that was my very first endurance event I had absolutely no business being there none I had no idea what I was getting myself into I figure you rollerblade whatever 
And tired on rollerblades sounds so dangerous. <laughs> yeah, but how about 85 miles over the gentle rolling hills of Georgia, which are not gentle, they're anything but gentle. And about 30 miles in, I was heading up. There's a hill that goes up and down, and on the downside, it's very dangerous. On the upside, I think they called it Heartbreak Hill or something like that. And on the way up, about a third of the way up, I just hit the wall. I was done, literally done. And I turned my skates perpendicular so that I wouldn't slide back down the hill. And I bent over on my knees, and I knew I was done. I couldn't go any further, like done. I'm 55 miles from the finish line, and I had no idea what the hell got me there. And I'm sitting there, bent over on my knees, going, you've given it everything that you have. You just, you're so far in over your head. And it kind of made me think, like, that's kind of the way I felt in life. Like, you're always, why are you always so far in over your head? And then I saw this this line of sweat come, because it was in the it was in the fall, and it was murderously hot and humid, and I'm just dehydrated, sweating everywhere. And I see this kind of, like, puddle of, sweat that turned into a line because it went downhill and I go I just for the moment I just went man if you could literally just go one more step just take one more step I go you're going to find out something new now just as easily you could pack it up and go home and you will have known everything about yourself right you would have figured out your limit like that's it you know everything now or you could just figure out a way to take one more step and if you take one more step maybe it's your last one but maybe it's not but maybe, but one thing for sure is you will discover something new because I'd never been there before. I'd never been past the point of failure, like the absolute, like I'm done, done, done. I can pack it up and go home. I know everything. Now I got to take one more step. And I did. And I went, okay, well, you could take another and then you could take another and another. And finally, I did make it like six hours later to the finish line, which was nine and a half hours of just brutality. But it made me think like every time that life is hard, every time that I've given everything I can, every time that something hasn't worked out no matter what I put into it, you know, whatever meaning of uncomfortable you have is like where like that's the wall. I That's it. I can't go any further. I always think, wait a second, though. Can you just figure out a way to learn something? Can you lean into it? Take one more step. And so a long answer to your question, but it's a visual in my head that's driven me for gosh i don't know close to 20 years now that that when you're done when you're at your most uncomfortable figure out a way to take one more step and just learn something mm that's beautiful i got this sort of like wave of a thrill a couple of times in there where i was like yes what a beautiful way of putting it because we talk about discomfort so much on this podcast as sort of the edge of your superpowers, but we've never put it, nobody's ever put it quite that way before. You learn something with every step you take on the other side of what you thought was your threshold of that point at which you thought you were too, you were broken, you'd hit your rock bottom or whatever. The next step always teaches you something. What a beautiful life lesson about discomfort, because look where it's taken you. Yeah, well, when you do things that where you don't already know the answer to, to me, isn't that the definition of learning? If you don't know what's going to happen, if you don't know the answer. So I try to stay as often as I can, not in the comfortable zones, but in the uncomfortable zones, because if I can make it through, if I can be aware, if I can just 
like soak it in. I'm learning, right? Because I've never been there before. It's like, it's very uncomfortable. I don't want to be there, but I have to be because that's the only place where I can learn. It's the only mm. And what personally has helped you to keep it away from the threshold of too much? Because you know how we get to a certain point of discomfort and our nervous systems shut down. You know, they blow up. They go, nope. And so how do you keep yourself feeling safe? Because what I'm getting from you is this sense of adventure and discomfort. So how do you create enough comfort and enough of a sense of adventure that you can keep going in those moments where if it were too much, things would just shut down? So it, there is, you know, actually a biological line to discomfort. So how do you walk that line? It is. It's a great question, Betsy. And, and I think part of that is that if you get enough experience in that realm of uncomfortableness, then you can learn with absolute certainty when it's okay to quit, when it's okay mm-hmm. to not go further. Like, here's an analogy I give people. I go, listen, could you go run a hundred miles? And they go right now, like, could you hang up this phone right now? Could you stop what you're doing if you're listening? And could you go run a hundred miles? The answer is no. You could not go run a hundred miles. Okay. Not without proper training and the right motivation or whatever. Could you walk a hundred miles? Well, most people go, I don't know if I could. I doubt that I could. Then I said, well, at the end of that hundred miles is the person that is closest to you. Mm-hmm. The one that you have the biggest connection with. And you have to, because they're calling for your help. You have to figure out a way to walk that hundred miles to get to them, to give them what they need. Most people would figure out a way to do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. What we don't do often is look at things in the terms of like, how far can I push myself? What's the motivation? Right. If you said at the end of that hundred miles is a thousand dollars, a lot of people would go not enough. If it's a, I get to take a year off and travel, maybe not enough. If it's your mother asking for help because you're the only one that can give it to her, you might, <laughs> yeah, some people might say, no, that's not how either. <laughs> But I'm just saying, whatever that thing is, and for me, it is a, it's a quest of learning. And mm-hmm. so I know I've spent enough time in that uncomfortable zone that sometimes when you do have to quit, you gotta quit. So I think there's where the balance is. I don't know if it's adventure as much as it is a thirst for knowledge, but, or insight or mm-hmm. maximizing the moment or the experience because I'm not really necessarily a thrill seeker, but I am a, you know, more like a, ah, oh, I got to see what I can learn from this. Yeah, I get a joyfulness from you. That's why mm-hmm. I guess I put it in my terms because mm-hmm. I love an adventure, but in a childlike, creative, exploring kind of way. Sure. But yeah, I guess that's sort of the definition of resilience, isn't it? The more you practice something, the more you know you can practice it. But also wisdom of having a practice of any sort. You know what your real threshold is and when it's okay to quit and not to power through and burn yourself out or get into a truly dangerous situation that actually probably wasn't a good idea. But yeah. yeah. You know, I think, um, Betsy, I think about this, like think of like everybody wears a tool belt. Okay. And we have a certain amount of tools that we use to deal with situations or whatever. I feel like a lot of people um, have their limited amount of tools and they use those tools for every situation that they come into. And those tools might be a good tools, a communication skills or high energy or a commitment or whatever. But those tools could also be avoidance, mm-hmm. fear, 
isolation, self-isolation, those kind of things. So I feel like the tools that we have accumulated are not enough to handle everything that life could give us. So shouldn't we try to go out there and gather more tools? And the only way that you can gather more tools is to go out there and learn, oh, I need this in this situation. I need that in that situation. And when I was sitting there in the middle of, I could give a hundred stories of that, like with endurance athletics, if I'm sitting at the point of no return where that, like I'm done, if I go further, if I figure out a way out of it, sometimes I don't, but if I figure out a way out of it, ah, I got a new tool and I can use that in business. I can use that in a relationship. I can use that to make a dinner. I mean, I don't know what the tools are, right? <laughs> but I want more tools. That's all I, I yeah. want more tools, you know? I love it. And also just to draw people's attention back to the, the fact that you didn't start doing these endurance events till you were what, in your late 30s, early late 40s? 40s. So yeah. I definitely was far behind everyone in gathering my tools. That's for sure. Well, not necessarily. I'm in my 40s and I've just started learning to paint. I say <laughs> learning. I've just started painting and I'm having a ball and I'm just so into it. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, I know what I can do. But like it is, it's so completely out of my comfort zone that it's it's almost a relief because I don't have to be good at it. I'm just mm-hmm. exploring. I'm just doing something. I'm just gaining some new tools that I'm sure are useful in other parts of my life. I will probably never show anyone my paintings, but that's kind of not the point. I'm in flow and I'm free and I'm discovering my joy and it's unlocking something in my brain right now. And I'm better able to think creatively and strategically. So a little public service announcement from me there about the value of, yeah, just being in, in discomfort and letting yourself have fun with it. So what, before we talk about all the other stuff you've done, because we have a lot of things to talk about, Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what you currently, what's your current discomfort practice? What are you training for? What are you learning or what's what's stressing you? It's all of it, all of it. So I've done 18 Ironmans. I'm going to, in 2023, in October, do the Hawaii Ironman. So Ooh, that's I'm a big to, one, huh? Yeah, I'm going to start to wrap my – I think that might end my Ironman career because I think 19 or 20 Ironmans is enough. I'm currently training for – I'm doing a 24-hour bike ride as part of a cancer organization's fundraising event in Amarillo, Texas in about uh, seven or eight weeks. So I'm training for that. I'm writing more books and working on all different kinds of things. So I definitely prefer to be – in the uncomfortable zone for sure. Like I, like that's comfortable place for me, comfortably uncomfortable. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. I was just like, well, that's not very uncomfortable because it sounds like you're having a ball. So what's interesting is where are the edges within that? Because if you've done that many Ironmans, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a comfort zone right now. You kind of know how it goes, but where are the edges in there for you still? Yeah. I don't care what you've done. I'm sure every time that you coach someone, it's like a new experience. Like you're bringing your knowledge, you're bringing everything, whatever, but still it's a new experience because it's a new person with a new set of dynamics. It's a new company with a new set of problems or whatever. So it's not the same old, same old, right? And I've never done an Ironman or a hundred mile run or any other type of endurance event. And some of them I've done multiple times, the same event multiple times, and I've never done one and not walked away going, oh, man, if I only would have known X, I would have done so much better. So everything is a learning experience, right? And so it it is uncomfortable inside of all of that, only because you're always 
you're always pushing to see what you're capable of. And mm-hmm. I'm a true believer in two things. One is based on that first story I told you, which is there's always more on the other side, right? There's, I'm always optimistic that there's more, right? That's number one. And number two is, which is a companion to that one is I just set higher goals, just train harder, work harder, balance more, take a more meaningful break, whatever it is, just make it more powerful, more mm-hmm. a bigger goal. Even if the bigger goal is to do nothing better, <laughs> you know, for an hour or whatever. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, it's sort of like, I just was curious because to most people, the idea of even contemplating an Ironman is so beyond comprehension. I just kind of want to get under the skin of somebody who has done that many Ironmans and be like, all right, what's still uncomfortable about that? Nobody's coasting in doing an Ironman. People are always trying to improve something or tweak their nutrition or improve their time or whatever, but as well as the fact that it's immensely physically uncomfortable, right? Like, it is, and people go, oh, I could never do that. And so let me tell you a super quick story. My very first half iron, okay, again, I got no business. What are the distances? Let's go over. So, so a, half iron man, a half Ironman is a, in English terms, American terms, it is a 1.2-mile swim, which is basically like a little less than 2K, a 56-mile bike ride, which is about like 80K, and then a half marathon, which a half marathon is like 20-odd K, 21K, something like that. So it's a 1.2-mile swim, 56-mile bike ride, and then a half marathon. So I'm getting ready to do my very first one, and I got no business doing it. And it's in Northern California, and it's a wave start, which means that they don't send everybody off at the same time. They send them off in different waves. I gotta burn off some nervous energy, so I go to the riverbank to watch the people take off, and I am the most intimidated guy ever. I'm like, oh my god, every, literally every person, Betsy, was cut out of stone. It's like Leonardo da Vinci molded every single person there, and they're all in their speedos, and they're all confident, and they're all like chiseled, and I'm like, what the hell am I even doing here? Like, I do not belong here. This was a stupid idea. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. What was I thinking? And then the gun goes off and people jump in the water. And one dude turns over on his back. He starts floating on his back and waving his arms. Another guy (laughs) starts swimming like circles, like he has no idea which way is straight. And another person starts doggy paddling. And I'm like, oh, my God, why don't you stop comparing yourself to what you think people can or can't do and how you measure up to them, why don't you just worry about what you can do? And I went, yeah, yeah, because you know what? So what if I don't belong in whose eyes? I'm not here to belong. I'm just here to see what I can do. And I ended up doing it, but it was a rude awakening for me that what limited me more than anything else was that thought of, oh, I could never do that. Mm, You could have stopped yourself before you'd even started. Absolutely. Who doesn't do that? You could have started painting 10 years ago, but you just started recently, right? Yeah. How much of a great painter could you be now? And if you continue in 10 years, how much better of a painter are you going to be than you, than you are now? I know. And I think my partner, who is a painter, who sat me down in the studio and was like, here you go. Just He just gave me some paints and sat me down and, and just let me dabble. He was very kind about it. And I was like, yeah, because I always thought, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm not a painter, but actually... Now I'm like, I can paint. It's fun. Who is a painter? Who is not a painter? Yeah, the imposter syndrome can really just stop you in your tracks. It does. Because yeah, we all have it, right? 
Yeah, it's another one of those tools, which is like like some kind of a tape measure, some kind of a measuring stick that says, okay, this is as far as I can go. Well, no, I think you need a bigger measuring stick. You need a longer tape measure because you can go a lot further if you wanted to. Yeah. I don't know what we're calling it these days, but it used to be a midlife crisis. But I'm just so loving being in my 40s because mm-hmm. you just kind of call bullshit on all the things, not all the things, but so many of the things that you're anxious about or you compared others, compared yourself to others too, and, and that you stopped yourself in out of insecurity or lack of confidence or lack of perspective. And man, I'm loving my 40s. I can't wait for my 50s and my 60s and my hundred eights or whatever yeah yeah, it's understandable why people do that we all do it especially if you don't have mentors or good examples or Mm. you didn't have people early in life who would want you to have an expanded mind right rather than a very closed mind then it's understandable as to why you don't understand that idea that the world is so much bigger and you can accomplish so much more and you should just be uncomfortable as often as possible because, yeah, it's just understandable why we don't do that. And when you do get a taste yeah. of it, it's really powerful, right? It's a real draw. People used to say to me, I'm walking through my office and, oh, I signed up for this or I signed up for that. They go, what the hell are you running from? And I go, huh. do you not understand, like, the whole concept of this? I'm not running from anything. I'm running towards something. I, I'm running mm-hmm. to something. And that is, what am I going to learn? What am I going to find out? Where am I going? Because I think that could be anything. You could be in your comfort zone and it's deeply uncomfortable. And also you could be a triathlete and genuinely be running from something. So it's all about intention, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm. And we don't always have the, the best intentions. Sometimes they're selfish. Sometimes they're even downright not healthy. But yeah, with a clear mind, I think that the intentions are relatively good no matter what. If you're leaning into what can I learn from this? Mm. You're not bringing your closed-minded, your limited tool belt to every situation. Like you're open-minded and you're like, what can I do? What can I learn? What is the world going to show me? I love people. I love people like that that don't know the answer to the question. Yeah. And if anybody's feeling stuck, like, oh, I don't have access to whatever equipment to do a sport or I feel stuck in my job that I can't leave because I have to take care of my kids or I don't like how much I weigh or this habit that I have it's getting in my way guess what you can change it you can make a decision to just change your mindset but maybe also change something else yeah I want to talk about your book because we've talked we've already kind of woven through a lot of the questions I had on like what has endurance athletics taught you? I think we've nailed a few of those already. Yeah, yeah. But particularly taking a 5,000 mile bike ride from California to Florida and then to New York, what, what were the lessons on that journey for you? <laughs> well, first of all, let's, let's be honest about it. It was originally a gimmick because what I did is I went into this project going, okay, I got to hit every perspective possible, like age, of the person, what type of trauma they had, the emotional reactions that they had. I wanted, um, you know, cancer one time or given their whole life to cancer as a researcher, as a, a scientist or whatever. And I wanted like this big wheel where I could fill in every little sector of the human experience because what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to write a really deep book about one person and see what we can learn from that. What I wanted to do was to write about what connects us all, which is emotion, right? 
Humans are only connected by two things. We're connected by emotion and we're connected by story. That's it. There's nothing else that, that all humans are connected by. But we're connected by the same basic emotions and we're connected by story. Who doesn't lean? There's not a human alive that doesn't lean in when you say, I got a story for you. Right? Everybody mm. leans in. We're connected by that. So when I had this wheel kind of filled in and I go, Oh, well, it's a cycle of lives. It's a cycle. It's a wheel. Oh, we're all connected by stories. So I'm, I said, ah, well, just jump on your bike and go meet everybody and connect the stories, right? You Sorry. do the thread that connects 5,000 miles later. <laughs> yep. So okay. I love the idea of kind of micro lessons and the idea of macro, my, macro lessons. Like I, I could tell you there's a million tiny little lessons that I learned and they're kind of personal to me and to my experience and they might touch people, they might not, but some of the more macro lessons that I learned, which are quite humbling, is one, you never know what people are going through or what they have gone through. You just don't know. You don't know what they've gone through or what they are going through. And when you take a moment, if you're given the opportunity or if you seize the opportunity to connect with somebody in a meaningful, heart-centered, take three breaths and be present way, it's truly fascinating what people have gone through and what they are going through. It's a very humbling thing because we all kind of tend to view the world through our own little, you never know what I've been through and how hard I've had it or what you can never understand me. Let me tell you something. People have dealt with unbelievable amounts of stuff that we would have no idea how they got to where they are right now. That's a very humbling thing, a very macro thing that I learned that's number one. Uh, number two is as much as this seems obvious, it's way more powerful than just the obvious is that trauma really does afflict everyone in some form or fashion. And it's a very isolating place to be. Sometimes self-isolate, right? Some, but oftentimes unintentionally people are abandoned because, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't want to get in their space. I don't want to say the wrong thing and be a jerk or I don't want to step in their, on their private, private space. So it could be they're abandoned or we could isolate because I don't want to burden people. I don't want to bring them down. Nobody's going to understand if I open up to someone, if I open up to Betsy, she's never going to return my call or whatever, right? But trauma is very, very real, and it can be a very lonely place for people. And if we can just figure out a way to connect with them, even if it's just for a moment, on a true, human, authentic, emotional level, it makes that place of trauma just a little less lonely. That's a macro mm-hmm. lesson that I learned. And, and everyone, if, even if they're not able to admit it, everyone has been there or is there in some to some degree. And so... Those are a couple of the macro lessons. I mean, there's a million others, but uh, those are some of the ones that really stick with me. Wow, those are big ones. Mm -hmm. And it's a good reminder, too, because it's not necessarily about people who have cancer. It's actually about somebody who cuts you off in traffic and somebody who annoys you at work. And you just don't know what their lives are like. And it's good to step out of being the center of your own story regularly. And I'm guilty of that. I've I've had a grumpy week for some reason, and I'm finding this a very good and humbling reminder of a conversation to just remember you don't know what that person who just looked at you wrong is going through. And also you don't know 
you don't know. And, and why they are the way they are could be absolutely the only thing they want to show you. It's not who they are at all. Let me tell you a quick story about Joshua. So Joshua is one of the book participants. And when I first met him, I met him through cold calling a cancer center and saying, hey, who do you know that I should be talking to? And they said, you got to talk to Joshua. My first conversation with him, all I got was this disconnected, I'm a young Latino macho guy, and that's how I deal with things and whatever. I got through my cancer and blah, 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 right? I did it because I'm this this macho guy. And I was kind of like, all right, well, whatever. That's the lesson that you got for me. When I got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a story, he wasn't macho. He was no way possible. Did he have the tools to allow people in? Because when he allowed people in, they abandoned him in the worst way possible. When he first got wheeled up to take his first surgery, the young guy, they found a sarcoma in his stomach and he was going to have to have surgery and he had hidden it from everyone in his life because he's Mr. Macho. And the reason why I'll get to in a second, but his girlfriend at the time is in the pre-surgical room with him and they're going over. And you know how when you're going in for surgery, like everybody and their brother has to come in and tell you you could die. Yeah. 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 That. And helpful. And, yeah. But she, he had told her, ah, you know, I got this little procedure I need to do or whatever. And she's hearing from a hundred people that he could potentially die. And she stands up before he gets uh, wheeled into anesthesia and says, dude, you're on your own. I, this is not my life. I'm out. Whoa. I cannot handle this. I'm out. So imagine that kind of abandonment. And that only reinforced his macho, I got this attitude because it reminded him of the only other person that he had ever let in in his life, which was his mother. And when he was six years old, he walked in on his mother taking her own life. And that type of abandonment, that type of being alone in the world to look out for yourself and never letting anybody in and just saying, if you don't like it, I'm, that's the way I am. I'm Mr. Macho. I got it. No, he doesn't got it. And when we got through our talk for a couple of years, he's a very good friend still. When we got through our talk, the amazing thing was is that he did learn how to love, how to be loved, how to show weakness, how to be vulnerable, how to appreciate what other people could do for him and allow them to do for him. And he kind of changed his whole outlook on life. So he wasn't Mr. Macho. He was just a person that needed to be okay with being safe no matter who he was and that not mm. everybody would abandon him. And when you run into a guy like that and you go, I think he's going through something and you go, Hey, Joshua, man, you're okay. And he's like, dude, I'm fine. Right. You might go, Oh, all right, fine. You don't want my help. Fine. You deal with your problems on your own. You walk away going, what a macho pain in the neck, whatever. All right, whatever. You have no idea what he might be going through or what he has mm. gone through. Mm. And that it's not easy to walk around with that, kind of like patient perspective on everybody that you run into, but it does make you think like, man, I can't assume to know what the hell somebody's going through or what they have gone through. And maybe there's way more behind the story. And if you're grumpy, maybe you have every right to be grumpy because I have no idea what the hell you just have been dealing with. Oh, that is such a good reminder when somebody just looks at you wrong or says something sharp, you've no idea. What happened when they were six or what happened two years ago or what happened? And we're all going through a pandemic. In case anyone listening to this hasn't noticed, we're all going through a pandemic. But it's bringing people to the edge. And a lot of people are really 
struggling with their mental health and struggling with, you know, the stress of having to homeschool kids because schools have been closed or they've lost somebody close to them or they have long COVID or we have no idea how people have had to deal with this pandemic. So it's a really good reminder that we just don't know what's going on with other people. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what led you to decide on 15 stories? Why not 16? Why not 14? Uh, Yes. So a little tough because Look, I don't want to be preacher or anything, but what I wanted this book to do was to allow the reader to gather a few more tools for their belt using that same analogy so that when someone in their life was going through something traumatic, they might be touched to go, oh, okay, this is how I might better interact with them. This is how I might better connect with them. And that's tough to do. It's tough to do. Like you, you see one inspirational movie and you can't apply that same inspiration to your life. It's just like mm-hmm. in that little window of that experience. Okay. I get it. So what I wanted to do with the book was to bring as much of a view and as many wild ranging emotional responses to traumas and as many wild traumas and as many different points in people's lives. So, The 15 ended up being 15 only because those were stories that I could get as deep as we needed to go in order to really understand the essence of those kind of topics of trauma and what people have gone through, what they've dealt with and what they've overcome and how they look forward and how they can evoke emotion in us so that we can understand them better. And I talked to many more people, Betsy, than 15 I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, some I wasn't able to go deep enough with. Um, mm-hmm. Some weren't able to go deep enough with me. I mean, I'm tragically, I missed one story. She just backed out about halfway through because it was so hard for her. She had uh, twins, uh, young boys, and one of her twins had no physical problems. The other developed a brain tumor as a baby. And they were able to beat the cancer. He, he's cancer-free, but he is definitely different than his twin brother physically emotionally mentally he'll catch up but but it's just it was so hard for her to talk about how she felt about this that i couldn't bring her experience to the page as well and maybe i wasn't a good interviewer maybe she just wasn't in the place to be able to do it but these 15 stories i'm I'm 100 certain that we laid everything on the line like they fully bought into the idea that if we could get to the essence of their emotional journeys, that it would inspire people, evoke emotion, that it would mm-hmm. it would empower people to be able to form connections with the people in their own lives. So that's why 15. It's not some magical number. It's just the number it ended up being. No, I get that. Because, I mean, my best interviews on here, and kind of why I'm so thrilled to be interviewing you, is people who really want to be here and they want to go on this walk with me. You know, and they're not they don't say yes because they got invited. They say yes because they want to be here. Absolutely. And that's when you do get the juicy stories, the realness, mm-hmm. the depth. And I totally get it. Mm-hmm. So how do you think being those stories with you affected the lives of those who told you their stories? And then how did that change you? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Some it affected profoundly. And I know that for sure. I'm thinking of one in particular a guy named Dominic, he, he became a, a really good friend. I met him on accident and 
he overheard me talking about the book and goes, man, I got a story for you. And he told me a story and it was literally unbelievable. I mean, it was unbelievable. And we had together one of these kind of profound life changing moments. And to wrap his story up in a very short order, he, as a teenager, was fine one day. And then the next day he was in the hospital, found out he had cancer. He was going to die. No chance of survival. He survived. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then he goes on the next 10 years of drugs and armed robbery and to feed his drug habit and in and out of prison and whatever. He knows he's going to die anyway. So who cares? Mm-hmm. And the cancer comes back and the same oncologist says, geez, I know you made it last time, Dominic, but uh, sorry, you got to have to get things in order because there's no way that you can beat the cancer this time. It's just, it's not possible. We'll treat it, but it's not possible. Um, and he survives again. Wow. Which is completely ridiculous. And then the next 10 years goes by and he's basically living that same thing. And I remember one conversation, Betsy, that just has never left me. It was a late night conversation and he just, he kind of broke down over the phone with me and he goes, man, I'm just so afraid of dying. I've lived my whole life being afraid of dying. And I said to him, I said, Dominic, from everything that you've told me, I think it's the opposite. I said, I think your whole life you've thought that you're going to die. So you've been afraid to live. And mm. He went, holy shit. You know, excuse my language. He goes, holy crap. You know, like, I, I think you're right. And I said, well, you keep talking about you want to tell your kids what you've been through and the mistakes you've made. And you want to write journals and you want to take pictures and you want to, like, live for the future. And I said, you can't do that until you decide that you want to live, right? And, and I go, just that seems so obvious to me from everything that you've told me. And he was like, hell, you know what? You're right. And so... Uh, over the next few years, he definitely changed his attitude on opening up about his experiences in life. And eventually he got an unrelated cancer and it took him pretty quickly and he's no longer with us. But he really, really lived those last few years. And I'm hoping even if it was 0.1 percent, but 0.1 percent of it was because of our connection. And so mm. in his life, I think. I came along at the right time for him to come to that realization and he came along at the right time for me to give him just one tiny little push in that direction. So not every story is that profoundly experiential to either myself or the other person, but I think many of them were at some level, even if just for a moment, but at some level. And I'm not in touch with some of the people anymore, but only because life moves on and we have so so much time for so many people. But then there's others that I'm super close to and that are involved in, in my life in a very meaningful way. So I guess I'm very lucky because only I think I only knew one of the people beforehand. So wow. it's kind of cool that this project brought, brought me in the lives of so many incredible people. Whom you've kept. Yeah. I love that. I kind of want to just put that out there to listeners right now. Just wrap your head around that question. Are you afraid of living? Yeah. And how would you live if you weren't afraid of living yeah it really flips the question because so many of us think oh i'm afraid of death but actually i think a lot of people are afraid of actually living because well it's like i think somebody asked i like this quote about relationships somebody asked paul newman who famously had a really good marriage something like well but what if it doesn't work out and he said but what if it does so it is that idea of like Take a risk, throw yourself in, because what if it goes well? What if this is living? And you're just like, I never knew I could do all these things. I never knew I could ride a bike for 5,000 miles. And 
yeah, what if it works out? Oh my God, can you handle that? <laughs> it's kind of a nice way to go about it, actually. Yeah, and it's so tragic for me to think about him. He had this one conversation with his dad when he was 19 in the hospital, when he was literally at the end of, of his rope, and, and he asked his dad if it was okay if he could die. He says, like, is it okay for me to die? And he just wanted the permission to just be done with it, right? And if you mm. can think of what it must be like as a 19-year-old to know you're going to die, to ask permission to die, and then to give yourself that safe space, like, that's where I am and that's where I'm going to go, and then to have that not happen, what a lonely, desolate place life could be if you think that you should yeah. be dead. And it's just very touching. very t- And also very inspirational that, you know, years and years and years later, he, he was able to really grasp life and realize that he had a purpose for living. Mm. I've worked off and on over the years with people with HIV positive people. And when I lived in Edinburgh, when I was doing my master's degree there, I lived there for many years. But when I was in my sort of mid 20s, I volunteered with this place called Waverly Care. And my job as a volunteer was to sit in their cafe and just talk to people. Mm-hmm. service users and what's interesting is edinburgh was the heroin capital of europe in the 90s if you've seen wow. train spotting this all makes sense yeah. so it was an interesting blend of hiv survivors from the 90s some of whom were ex-drug addicts and then another chunk of whom were mostly gay men who'd watched their friends die of aids in the 90s mm. And what was interesting was though the latter group had such survivor guilt but also a lot of them, they got HIV and they, they were like, okay, well, we're going to die because that's what happens when you get HIV in the 90s, usually. So they like partied and they racked up credit card debt and <laughs> right. they buried their friends right. and they were like, well, I'm next. And then it didn't happen. Yeah. And so like they're stuck in this hideous, it's I don't want to call it a comfort zone, but like where they they inhabit is this place of like, I should have died. Mm. And it it puts them in this weird space of, of not really living. And I think antiretrovirals have improved so much in the past 15 years since I worked with them that hopefully they are more fully living, but it's like it wrecked their lives because they were so sure they were going to die. And then they didn't mm-hmm. that they weren't ready for life. And so I can really relate from, from that perspective to what you're saying is like, you can get stuck in this idea of like you're dead before you're dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I am kind of person that tell me how to do something, and I'm a little cynical, and I'm not sure that you should be the person telling me. But let me watch you do something or overcome something. I'm like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. There's truth in that. There's truth in that. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, you know, trite saying, or maybe I heard it in a book that I was listening to or something, and they said that uh, trite sayings are actually truth i mean i know they're trite but there's so much truth behind them and yeah i was prior to this book and i've done a lot of other projects but prior to this book i really kind of shrugged at trite sayings like you know just keep on living or don't be afraid to die or just whatever that trite saying is i would like roll my eyes at it and go that it does me no good and then when you realize that there might be so much more behind it then you got to go stay, step back and go, well, what can I learn? Tell me more. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. What is it? Sort of homespun wisdom. 
Yeah, it does seem cheesy, and you're just like, oh, God, my mom has that on a plaque in her kitchen or something. But actually, yeah. there's quite often something to it. It's yeah. why it's been around for There's not um, always yeah. something to it. Can I tell you another super no. quick story? One of the Oh, yeah, of course. It's this, story time. So I'm, I'm talking to this woman who I hadn't met her. She, she was introduced to me, and they said, oh, you got to talk to her. She's got a great story. And like every person that I spoke to, the first thing they told me was, ah, I'm not that interesting. Nobody's going to want to know my story, right? And meanwhile, they were all super, super interesting. In my very first conversation with her, and she was one of the very first people that I spoke to, um, I rolled my eyes because I said, oh, so yeah, start talking to me. And she goes, well, my outlook on life is just figure out a way to put your feet on the ground and go about your day. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. Like, what the heck does that even mean? Like, does my mom have that on a plaque in her kitchen, right? And I'm talking to her, and I'm talking to her, and I realize, whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. So this is a woman who, for 35 years of her adult life, had five different cancers, figured out a way to overcome five different types of cancers over a 35-year period, and all of the unimaginable surgeries, radiations, chemotherapy, all the ancillary problems that she had as a result of all of those things unbelievable right mm. and I go okay well yeah that's pretty amazing but yeah well behind that was she didn't receive her first cancer diagnosis until after but briefly after she met the person that would end up being the love of her life right and wow. they've gone through this whole lifetime of her having cancer right and how she's been able to allow herself to be loved and to love someone else and the guilt that could come with that and the, the negative attention you know all of this stuff and then that was wrapped in this idea that right before she met the love of her life, she had escaped a four-year, a terribly abusive, physically abusive relationship where basically she had to re reinvent her identity and, and, and escape from wow. a certain death. And it was just this four years of unimaginable horror that she had to endure. And, and near the end of our talks... She said, remember when I told you? She goes, look at my outlook on life is the moment I was out of that abusive relationship, I put my feet on the ground. I went about the day the way that I wanted to go about the day. She mm -hmm. goes, and when I had a love of my life, it was to go spend time with him. When I had cancer, it was to go get treatment. She goes, and sometimes when I put my feet on the ground, I couldn't go about my day and do anything more but make my bed and then fall right back into it. She goes, but every single day. I put my feet out on the ground and go about my day. And I'm like, whoa, that is the opposite of trite, right? That is the yeah. most powerful thing I've ever heard is just put your feet on the ground and go about your day. Even if that means you got to fall right back into bed again. And I'm just like, what the hell kind of wisdom is that? Profound. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm going to write that on a piece of paper and put it on my mirror. <laughs> and so that was a trite saying that to me was anything was opposite of trite. Obviously, once you, once you learn what's behind it. And that's what the beauty of, of I think, these stories is, is that there is so much mm -hmm. wonderful truth and, I don't know, just eye-opening wisdom and experience and emotion behind people's lives that, you can be touched if you just take a few deep breaths, you know, and just yeah. be present for a moment and see what people are going through. And I guess the trite becomes profound quite often when it's lived so extremely or when you have such maybe in your own life, you have such an extreme situation to reflect your own life off of. 
-hmm. when you see people who've had cancer after cancer after cancer for 35 years and you suddenly start to appreciate what you thought of as sort of mundane and comfortable and you realize how profoundly blessed you are in some way or how actually it's all a perspective anyway, that you can have cancer and still live with joy and still live rather than just waiting to die or living like a sick person or or whatever. And coming back to you and what you're doing with this, you've taken the discomfort of losing your sister and of being with people who, for all intents and purposes, are experiencing some pretty excruciating existential mm-hmm. discomfort and physical mm-hmm. discomfort and everything but you've made it into something that can be beautiful for other people that can be encouraging. And it's not just about reading this book to learn about how to, you know, Mm -hmm. how other people with cancer have dealt with it or whatever. It's bigger than that. And I think that's, what's really come out for me here is, is your mission in this. Yeah. And it's a great thing, right? It's a great thing to have been taught that there is a way to connect with people at a deeper level. Not everyone. You can't connect with everyone and not everyone's going to be open to it when you're open to it and vice versa. But if you can, when you can, you have to take the opportunity to connect with people in an authentic way because, you know, in the end, that's all, that's all that really matters is, is those mm-hmm. connections that you form. And these people that were a part of this project, as small as, a three minute conversation with someone that's never left me from the moment I had it with them to talking to somebody weekly for two years, right? It's if given the opportunity, you can't discount what other people are going through and you also can't compare it or discount it to what you're going through because I can't tell you how many times I've said to someone that I was interviewing, Oh my God, how in the world did you ever do that? And they go, what are you talking about? Like that was easy. I know somebody or how could you ever do what you do? Like I could never do that. And you sit there and go, yeah, well, why don't I just let you live your life and I'll live mine. Right? Mm. And it's all <laughs> relative. Discomfort is relative as yeah. well, isn't it? Like somebody else's version of hell is your morning training run or something. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. vice versa. I have people that look at me and go, man, what do you do is nothing. Try doing X. And I'm just like, there's no way I could do that. And it might yeah. be whatever. It might be something that most people would find mundane. and But for them, it's just like the most exhilarating thing ever. And there's no way I could do it. Mm. So what was your intention for writing this book or going through the process of writing this book? Well, that was my intention, as we talked about earlier, was to say, okay, don't be inspired by a person's journey and how can you apply it. But I really wanted to, when my sister died, she had, you mentioned it in the intro, she had promised to be out at a high school field to watch people go around the track for 24 hours in support of people with cancer. And she didn't make it. She died two days before. And I had convinced her that if you're going to be out there for the whole 24 hours, I'll go out there for the whole 24 hours, right? And so it was really touching because she was going to die either way, but it really would have been nice if she could have seen it. But what she would have seen, I'm sure of it, is that everybody was very open and energetic about the tasks around the cancer. Oh, we got to rally and bring them food. Oh, we got to help them navigate the healthcare system. How do we get their kids watched? How do we find the right oncologist? How do we eat better? How do we, all of that, they're very energized about. But when it comes to loss or the abandonment 
or the other traumas in our life that affect our ability to communicate, form con- connections with people. That was a very quiet, dark, we don't talk, self-isolating mm-hmm. period where you just go, wow, man, we don't know how to deal with the emotional side of this thing. And I don't mean this thing cancer. I mean this thing, you know, trauma, grief, grief trauma, trauma yeah. you know, fear, yeah. whatever. It's just, we just want to sh- pretend that it's not there. And so we just, we lock ourselves mm-hmm. in a little, little dark closet. So I wanted to just explore why, like, it, does it have to be that way? I know it's isolating. I, I'm not trying to say it's not, but can we form some connections with people that are going through yeah. a difficult time or when we're going through a difficult time, can we allow other people in for just a minute? to connect with us in an authentic way to make their journey or our journey um, any better. And so that was the motivation Mm. to do it, is to shine a little bit of light on that dark place. Beautiful. I had a guest, uh, was it last season or earlier this season, Jane Duncan Rogers, who's the CEO. Well, she set up Before I Go Solutions when her husband's love of her life was dying of cancer for a year. And it was about making the most of their last year together and how to then – deal with grief and the process of going through the knowledge you were going to lose someone mm-hmm. and then what to do afterwards. So yeah, I, I just, there are so many connections there. I think, I also think you should meet. I think you'd get along quite well. She's awesome. Scottish. I we love, love you. Oh man, Scottish people are so fun to talk to. If you can understand what the heck they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> She's a very clear accent. You'd be fine. You'd be fine. She's on the podcast. So I can tell you people can understand her. She's nice. Good I'm going to go check out that, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that episode on my next long bike ride. Yeah. Oh, oh, you do podcasts on bike rides. That's a, I walk everywhere and do podcasts. I do podcasts on, I just literally just finished yesterday on a bike ride. I just finished a 14 hour book with a woman that was on our podcast and she was a, a woman. I forget the name of the book it was surviving gratitude or something like that. Mm. And it was her story of overcoming stage four colon cancer, colorectal cancer, cancer. And yeah, her book was pretty good. It was like, it was more of a journal than than a book, you know, very, very moving, very touching, like deep look into somebody's experience dealing with a year of from being diagnosed to being cancer free. And luckily, she's, you know, eight or nine years past that, which very few people wow. survive a stage four colon cancer. And yeah, a little tough to listen to sometimes when you're biking or running because it's so deep. But mm-hmm. I spend more time on a bike or running than I could come close to spending on the couch so reading a book so I, I have to take my books in that way that's great no i'm the same it's yeah walks places workouts mm-hmm. long long drives it's a good way to digest things yeah well i want to ask you two final questions sure. which is what gives you hope about the future sometimes it's a hard place to be right hope about the future because there's so many bad things in the world and there's so mm. there's so much grief and nonsense and closed-mindedness and you just go like what the hell i mean honestly like how do people even think the way they do let alone like like openly think the way they do about so many rotten things so hope's an interesting word i, I would say that my hope is more towards individuals I think you touched on earlier, in case you haven't noticed, the, the pandemic. But I think the one thing that we all have in common is that particular thing. We haven't had probably something in common like that probably since World War II. I, I yeah. mean, even the financial crisis or Vietnam War, those kind of things, they weren't, they weren't really as 
permeated through the world as COVID. And out of that, I feel like individually we can transform. We've had to get in our cocoon. Maybe we can come out butterflies. That's my thing is individually I've hoped that people will have been given a chance to reassess, to reevaluate, to take a deep breath and connect with the world and connect with themselves in a way that will allow us to be better going forward. I don't know if when reading the news I feel that way, but when talking to people I do. I love that. I don't think the news is put together to make you feel that way, so uh, we're in the same boat. <laughs> So then what's one thing you'd like to leave listeners with? Oh, my gosh. This is always the toughest question. It's a tough question, but I would say that if you can, I guarantee you, I absolutely 100% guarantee you, and I'm sorry if this sounds a little know-it-all-ish, but I guarantee you every single person out there, you and me included, have someone that's going through something really, really, really profoundly difficult. And it's been easy because of our busy lives to give them some space to not check in on them or to not want to invade their private space as they're going through a difficult time. We haven't called them when we maybe could have or sent them a note, right? I'm not saying, I'm not preaching. I'm just saying we all know that person. We all know the person that's just, they lost their spouse a year ago and we talked to them a couple of times since then, but we haven't talked to them in six months or somebody's in the hospital or just got out or whatever. I would say there's absolutely someone that you could literally hang up from this podcast and call and go, hey, I was thinking about you. It's been too long since I've reached out. What the hell is going on? Mm. Right? I mean, that's what I would leave them with. Like, like, I can tell you that in all of the people that I spoke to, there was always some period of time in which they felt abandoned. There was always some period of time when they felt really alone and understandably, because it's hard to talk to people. If we had a greatest day in the world, you're not going to call somebody who just lost a, a friend to cancer and say, geez, how are you doing? Because I had such a great day. But just to connect with people in a meaningful way, if, if only for a moment, there's somebody's out there that's hoping that you call. Mm, that's a good reminder to actually, well, reach out, connect with people and to be be uncomfortable because you don't know what they need. You don't know what they're thinking of you. Just reach out and connect. Actually, I think that's a really good thing to leave people with. It's just remember we're all human and we all need to connect with other people. David, thank you so much for your time, for your stories, for just your, you have this gentle but really, I don't even know what the word, forceful, but it's this constant strong energy, but it's soft at the same time. So, yeah, I wish you the best of luck in your Hawaii Ironman. Oh, and all the other things you're up to and the books you're writing and whatever it is that you decide to turn your sights on next. So thanks for dancing in discomfort all the time, it seems, and for the conversation. I really enjoyed this. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. You're welcome, Betsy. And keep doing what you're doing. You, you're obviously very passionate about it and you bring out the best in people. So keep doing it. Thank you. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort 
helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable. <laughs>